Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to John 6. As we work our way through John, it's uh, a joy to see the work that the Lord's doing in our hearts, in my own heart in particular. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude for how the Lord is producing in me uh, personally a greater dependence upon and reverence for the Lord, uh, as well as a greater softness in my heart for those who don't know him, uh, increasing willingness to trust him for that lifelong process of being sanctified for his glory and for the good of, of those who would love and trust him. So we're in John 6, and I want to simply ask you to follow along as I read from verses 59 through 71. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Father, we plead with you in this moment to use your word to illumine our hearts, to help us to see rightly. For those who genuinely believe in the Christ of the Bible, we ask for greater conformity to his image that we would, in fact, be less like we were when we arrived and more like him when we leave. We pray that you would sanctify us with your word as he even now is praying for us to happen for those who are not in Christ and particularly for those who think they are and yet reject Scripture, reject the Christ of the Bible. Lord, we pray for an illuminating work in their hearts and minds. No longer would they be deceived by the fog of total depravity, but a willingness to be humbled by the reality of the grace and mercy of our Savior. We pray this for his glory. Amen. You may remember from last week that I kind of walked you through a sequence that we've seen in this passage. The exegetical work or the hermeneutic work of breaking down the book of John is not like a lot of other letters. When you read 1 Peter or you read Galatians or Ephesians, you can kind of break it up into small chunks and they are autonomous in a sense, and yet there's a theme or themes that run throughout the books. 
That's not so much true with a book like John. With John, really what you see is a narrative that runs lengthily. And as you observe how that narrative is displayed and how it works, if you're planning to teach from it or preach from it, at times you think, oh, I need to do this whole section in one sermon. And I remember thinking that about the section on the woman at the well, or even Nicodemus. It's only 15 verses, and I thought, oh, this is probably one sermon. It turned out to be three. The reason for that is that narrative holds so much. When you first look at it, you think, oh, it's a story, and it is a story. It's not a parable, so it's not fiction. It's true. It's a record of something that actually happened. And so with today's passage, really we're going back through the same thing that we went through last week, but we're doing it with more of a microscopic effort. We looked uh, really at the general realities of more of a bird's eye view last time. I did give you an outline, but this morning I'm going to ask you to do something that I, I don't know if I've ever even asked you to do this before, but I really want you to follow that outline in your bulletin. Uh, Some of you take notes in a journal book or maybe a notebook or something. Some of you use the bulletin sheet. Whether or not you actually write in the bulletin, I want you to follow along because I've worked hard to ensure that I've given you an outline that very, very closely and carefully delineates the distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. And you ought to be looking for these things in the Scripture as you see how the Lord saves people, when He saves them, and what the product is. If you look at John 15, the terminology used there is the fruit. Believers have fruit. Jesus talks about those who have dead fruit, meaning it's it's the result of non-life. It's the product of death. Similarly, or comparatively, to how live fruit is the product of life. And in our text this morning, you see this contrast in ways that can't be ignored. You have to give careful consideration to this. Whether you're in Christ and your life is a constant and regular, repentant, loving, humble reflection of that, You therefore need, as I prayed earlier, to be sanctified, to be calibrated, to be adjusted, you know, to see where you fall short and how you might be faithful to Christ increasingly. Whether you're that person or or the person who lives in deception, you've made some claim to the person of Christ, you even visit the church every now and then, but you don't see what the Bible pervasively reveals about what it means to be a person who is redeemed by the Savior in such a way that fruit is evident. And people would say, as I read my Bible and as I observe this person's life, I see redemption, I see humility, I see love, I see grace, I see ministry. So whether you're in one or the other of those two categories, or maybe you're the person who would say, you know what, I'm not a believer and I know it. I'm well aware of the fact that I've given no allegiance to the Bible whatsoever during my lifetime. That's the more honest person. The first and the third category are the more honest people, the the one who humbly tries to submit himself to the leadership and subjection and ministry of others and wants to know whether or not his life truly is reflective of what it means to be in Christ. That's the honest person. The other honest person is the one who says, you know, I know I've never cared about this, but for some reason all of a sudden I care. The person in the middle is the one who most often is the most difficult to minister to because his life is much like that of the Pharisees. He just wants a great reputation. 
You know, he just wants people to think just highly enough of him that he can sleep at night. His conscience can be salved. That's the, that's the hard nut to crack, if you will, and no one can crack that nut except God. And we want this morning for our lives, right, we want to be humbled by the truth that we see in this passage that the Lord would use us by grace and by love to bring truth to bear upon that dishonest person's heart that he would have the joy of eternal life. So let's do that together, shall we? Let's look closely at this text. Let's ask the Lord to give us illumination of mind that we would see what his intent is. And he'll use us for his glory and for the redemption of the lost. So again, last week, this was the the sequence, if you remember. For the false convert, doubt turns to offense. Offense turns to grumbling. Grumbling turns to apostasy. Apostasy reveals disbelief and imminent betrayal. And that betrayal should lead, it must lead, to the need for personal assessment. But so often the person who needs personal assessment is the one who least wants it. Because he's far more interested in insulating himself with disingenuous conduct that might and hopefully will persuade others to believe that he actually is redeemed. If he spends any time at all thinking about what it means to be a Christian, he spends most of his time thinking about his appearance. What's his problem? It's doubt. It's doubt. That doubt leads to offense, which leads to grumbling, which leads to apostasy, which reveals disbelief and imminent betrayal. Ultimately, he will reject Christ. In fact, he has rejected Christ, but he's pretending that he hasn't, a la Judas. We'll see that a little more closely this morning. This morning, we'll look even more closely into Jesus' sermon, and we'll see the difference between the false convert and the true convert, the false believer and the true believer. We'll observe the heart and conduct of the false disciple who will eventually betray Jesus so that you will examine your own heart and conduct and be certain that you have eternal life. And of course, that can't be the always every week ultimate purpose of our time together, right? Eventually, you will come to the conclusion and convincingly so, especially based upon the testimonies of others who are in Christ, that you yourself are in Christ. And so your hope rests in the power of the Word of God. And, you know, the cumulative effect of that over time is that you do it more and more and more. And your life reflects that. So while, while I want you to be certain that you either are or are not in Christ, collectively as a body, what ought to be happening is that we are becoming increasingly equipped to help others do the same. That's evangelism, right? Our role this morning is not to evangelize the lost. It will happen. But our role this morning is to be equipped to evangelize the lost so that when we leave here, we are all the more gracious, all the more loving, all the more careful, all the more warm, all the more winsome, all the more humble in order to establish credibility to be able to share truth with those who 
don't know the Lord. Point number one last week, this is quick review. Unconverted disciples expose, this is in your uh, note sheet, your bulletin. Unconverted disciples expose their unwillingness to hear truth from Jesus, preventing their belief in him. We saw this in verse 59. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Jesus exposed the spiritual dead condition of the unconverted disciples' hearts who refuse to believe in him. Doubt is the obvious disposition of the unbeliever in verse 60. Point two last week was Jesus exposes the spiritually dead condition of unconverted disciples' hearts who refuse to believe in him. You saw that in verses 61 through 64, verse 66. This is what Jesus does as he interacts with people relationally, as he gets to know them and he allows them to get to know him. It's not just an effort to figure out you know, whether or not there's a chemistry so we can hang out and be pals. What Jesus is doing is graciously, lovingly, in a brotherly, warm way, revealing the condition of people's hearts. And that's what you and I should be willing to do more and more as well. As we see his example, we see his grace, we see his love. But he doesn't pull any punches, if you will. He establishes credibility, and then he does and says what needs to be done and said. Well, this morning, point number three, and I've got it broken down, as you see there, into a number of subpoints. True disciples are known by their, A, perseverance. Their perseverance. Look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? So there was a lack of perseverance in the hearts and the lives of the unbelieving. When he asked the 12, do you want to go away? Peter represents himself and another 10 of the 12 by saying, where would we go? Stating clearly that he is the one to go to. So it's clear to them that he is worthy. This is one of the main points of a solid soteriology, perseverance of the saints. A lot of people want to put an undue emphasis on the concept of eternal security. Say, well, how could you put too much emphasis on that? It's not the primary issue. The primary issue is perseverance. As you read through the scripture, you see that the person who has eternal life is the person who does what? He perseveres. He overcomes. Read Revelation. As he overcomes, he displays the fact that God has set his seal upon him, that God has established redemption in him. God has granted him repentance. He's granted him belief. So why does he persevere? Well, some people hang in there, right? They keep doing stuff, but they eventually experience what a lot of people will call burnout. And I'm here to tell you, I have no idea what that means personally, experientially. I can't burn out. Can I get tired? Can I be worn out? Of course I can. And sometimes that happens. Many times that happens. But because God has blessed us with a faithful, godly, humble plurality of leadership, I'm not the only one doing the work. Years ago when I worked at an engineering company in Houston, I was asking a, a guy about his church experience. I was really young at the time, and I was a youth pastor. I was asking about his church experience, and he said, yeah, I don't do any of that stuff. That's for the pastor. Nowadays, that might bother me a lot. 
Back then, I just kind of felt bad for his pastor because I knew that wasn't the case. We are not the 80-20 church, right? The church where 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. I think we're maybe more like, I don't know, better than that. Let's just say that. (laughs) You're faithful people. You understand that when God has saved you, it means that you are set apart. What are you set apart for? Well, primarily you're set apart for holiness. You're set apart in such a way that you do reflect the character of God, not just the image of God, but the character of God because God has placed his special love upon you and he has set you apart for a reflection of his grace. The person who doesn't reflect his grace but still involved kind of in the activity reveals about himself that grace is not his concern. His concern is his appearance and his ability, because of his appearance, to criticize other people who have a lesser appearance. That's the consistent characteristic of the false convert. He passionately works to ensure that his reputation is built up, and then he uses that to criticize others who he is convinced don't have as good a reputation he does. The believer perseveres. He stays in there. And he loves that. And he's not unwilling to go to people and say, I need your help. He's not the person who says, well, you know, I've been one of those guys. I just, you know, I do stuff myself. You know, my dad did it that way. I do it that way. No, no, no. Because he knows that he's not the only one that God has caused to persevere that there are others in the body that he has caused to persevere. He knows that his role is not to take everything in and of himself and do it by himself, but to be willing to receive the help of others. Read 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. We're a body. The body needs its parts, and the parts need the body. That's why Paul uses that illustration, because everybody understands that. No matter how well your body works, some of you know your body doesn't work like it used to. Either way, whether your body's working great or not, you know that your body needs its parts and the parts need the body. And without its parts, without the joints and the sinew and the blood and the organs, everything that's involved, your brain, without the parts, the body suffers. And in some cases, the body dies. The believer perseveres. The true disciple perseveres. You say, how do I, where do you see perseverance in this passage? They didn't walk away. You see? Well, B, true disciples are known by their eagerness to listen. You know, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, you see the eagerness of the Thessalonians to receive the word of God. And Paul indicates, he states there that the word of God is doing its work in those of you who believe. If you can look at somebody's life over the course of time, the last six months, two years, six years, and you say, you know, honestly, I don't see growth. When you can say that, it's because, here's why, this is the problem. The Word of God is not doing its work in that person. Why is the Word of God not doing its work in that person? Because the person doesn't believe. But you say, he's so involved, he's pretending. He's putting on a show. And I wouldn't even say he's putting on a good show. If you're discerning, you'll know the difference. You'll know the difference. How does this work? He's eager to listen. 
In order for Peter to say anything, he first must have been willing to listen. And he does say something in response to what Jesus says, right? Well, let her see there's a willingness to respond. There's a willingness to respond. You know, to know that someone's listening often is proven by their willingness to say something in light of the fact that they heard what you said. That's certainly the case here. The text in verse 68, the text says, Simon Peter answered him. Are you answering him? When you read the word, is it your inclination to answer? Or do you most often say, man, I got a cousin in Alabama who really needs to hear this. Are you answering him? Are you responding personally? Letter D, there's an inclination to inquire. Not just respond, but specifically to ask questions. Lord, to whom shall we go? Are you kidding? How could we leave? But see, listen, the false convert has no problem. He has no problem especially when he's heard things he does not like from the Word of God. He has no problem saying, well, I'm not so sure about all this. That's the church hopper. It's also the person who goes once and says, I knew I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) There's an inclination to inquire, not just to respond, not just to listen and hear and give some sort of response, but to ask. Lord, I hear what you're saying, but honestly, what other hope is there? And there is none. Letter E, there's trust in his word specifically for eternal life. It's not just, I mean, think of it, plenty of people are sort of scholarly in their approach to the Word of God. Plenty of people are committed to reading the Word of God and really knowing it. I've been telling you about this former professor in Israel who spent 23-plus years serving a, a university in their extension in Israel, knows the geography and the culture of Israel quite well, but he doesn't know the Lord. He abandoned the faith. He's made it very clear that he does not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, which is a critical, fundamental truth of Christianity. So there's no real interest in that person's heart to ask honest questions that display a deep trust in him, specifically a trust in his word. You have the words of eternal life. I've been engaging in another interaction with a group of pastors from the seminary from which I graduated, and it's interesting that what's being revealed is that some genuinely believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture and some don't. And some are starting to put some stock or belief in this idea that Jesus is actually going to Muslims in dreams, and they're becoming saved as a result of that dream. And if you haven't heard about this, it's been going on for about 10, 15 years. It's the only culture throughout history where this has ever been supposedly happening. Why Muslims? Any guess? Why would it be a group of Muslims that Jesus would show up to in dreams? You know anything about Islam? What what do they base everything on? It's dreams. 
everything is based on dream life. So is that Jesus going to them in a dream? Show me one place in Scripture where Jesus goes to somebody in a dream. Or one place in Scripture where there's an indication that Jesus ever will go to someone in a dream. Peter has established that his trust is in the Word of God. And let me assure you, if there's a Jesus that comes to somebody in a dream, it's nothing more than a transfer from one false religion to another. Jesus speaks exclusively through his Word. And the person who wants to believe that he's getting information from Jesus through some other avenue simply has a low view of his Word, specifically what his Word says about his Word. To those who add to it, the plagues mentioned in it will be added unto him. If you add to the word, you will be proved a liar, Proverbs 30. Peter rested in, he trusted in the word for eternal life. It was what Jesus said. And what would Jesus say? What did he say? He pointed to his death that atoned for the sins of everyone who would believe in him. And he was resurrected unto new life, granting new life to everyone who would believe in him. That's the gospel. This is what Jesus had explained. Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. Thematically, in the book of John, we've mentioned it many times, verse 31 of chapter 20 tells us, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in His name. Well, further, letter F, true disciples are known by their belief in the true Jesus. This is what Peter is pointing to here when he says, and we have believed. Those who certainly believe in Jesus believe certainly in the word of Jesus. They're not looking for additional information. They certainly believe in him, and therefore they certainly believe in his word. And believing in his word, they get their information about him exclusively from his word, not from a dream or a movie. By the way, you're asleep when you're dreaming. I'm sure you know that. Is that helpful? You're really going to make some sort of conclusion about something that happened when you were sleeping? I think at best people misremember what they dreamed when they were dreaming because it was a dream and they were asleep. But belief in the true Jesus, Peter proclaims here, you are the Holy One of God, you are the Messiah. You are the one set apart, not somebody else. See, that was the problem with the Jews, right? They didn't believe that he was the Holy One, the set apart one, the Messiah. Peter said, we're not trying to figure that out anymore. He believed what he had said about himself. Jesus had proved it. Peter and the apostles believed it. Well, all of this then, true disciples being known by their perseverance in Christ, their eagerness to listen, their willingness to respond, their inclination to inquire, their trust in his eternal word 
for eternal life, and their belief in the true Jesus of the Bible proves that the Father has given them eternal life. See that? See, they're not trying to convince others that they should get some credit for their salvation. Why do I say that? Look at verse 65. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This is a big deal. The fact that God grants eternal life, that the Father draws the believer to the Son. It's a work of God. The way we like to say it is that salvation is of the Lord. So there were plenty who followed him. They were following him. He calls them disciples. And they abandon him. But the true disciples are granted by the Father to the Son. And this is how we know. By their perseverance, which unfolds in all these things we just walked through. Well, point number four. Point number four. False disciples are known by their inability to understand truth. Look at this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. So they respond immediately with, with skepticism. This, this is difficult. Now, that's not wrong because it is difficult. Unless, of course, you're willing to simply acknowledge that he's using a metaphor when he says he is the bread of life. But Jesus pushes the envelope on this metaphor. He takes it to the nth degree, unless you eat of my flesh and drink my blood. The false convert would hear that and say, that's weird. The blossoming believer would say, um, it's difficult, but I'm listening. And I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to try better to understand that. In Roman Catholicism today, as you know, there's a willingness to say, no, no, it's literal. And they mystify the whole thing. And so they say, they call it transubstantiation, meaning that the bread and the wine literally, somehow, literally, this is what I was taught as a kid. I wasn't Roman Catholic, but in my pseudo-Presbyterian church, I was taught that it literally became flesh. And as I'm eating, I mean, I, I, I watched the ladies in the back room cut it into little squares, and I'm like, no, that's Wonder Bread. And the stuff in the cup, it's grape juice. I saw them pouring it. But what they teach is that it literally, that's the term, it literally becomes the body and the blood. And nobody in their right mind really believes that, but they pretend they believe it because they see lots of other people effectively pretending that they believe it. It's idolatrous, it's completely mystical, it makes no sense at all. That doctrine alone should cause Roman Catholics to wonder what in the world they're doing in such a mess, such a doctrinal mess. There's so many things wrong with the Roman Catholic Church we don't have time to go into now, but that in and of itself is one of the, the clearest expressions of absolute dishonesty. The unbeliever is unable to understand truth they say this is a hard saying. Letter B, they show an unwillingness to listen to truth. Who can listen to it? 
This is the height of their skepticism. This is the point at which they have determined to walk away. Letter C, the unbeliever is marked by grumbling about truth. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, the text says. Letter D, they show disgust with truth. Jesus said to them, do you take offense at this? He asked them that because they did. They were offended. They were disgusted by the truth that he was explaining to them. Letter E, they live in the flesh. They have an insatiable interest in worldly things. What's a worldly thing? It's something that doesn't honor Christ. Or it's something that could potentially honor Christ, but it's used in a way that doesn't honor Christ. So he lives in the flesh because he is in the flesh. He's not of the Spirit. The text says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. That alone ought to completely destroy any hint of interest in Arminian theology. Right? The idea that you bring yourself to Christ, that you accept Christ, that you ask him to be the Lord of your life. It's, could it be more clear? The flesh is no help at all. The point is the unredeemed person cannot help himself. He can't. It's no help at all. It's quite clear. But... The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. You see what's happening here? He's displaying the reality that there are those who have rejected truth. They don't believe. They're not willing. They're disinterested. And what does he say to them? He says, the flesh is no help at all. Your problem is that you think that you've brought yourself to the Father. You're not even somebody who knows him. You've been a great job of pretending. So what does he say? What's the solution? He doesn't just leave him there. The spirit is life and the flesh is death. What does he say? The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Listen. Hear the words. Respond. Believe. Be willing. God will save that person. He's not able to save himself. He's not able to bring himself to the Father. But if he will listen and believe, God will save him. Isn't that beautiful? And that's the reflection in the life of the person who actually knows him. The person who doesn't know him lives by the flesh. He doesn't want God to get the credit. He wants to be able to say, no, 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 I chose him. I remember how that worked. F, there's a refusal to believe truth. Look at verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. See this? He's placing the onus on them. He's clarifying their culpability. You choose not to believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. Verse 62. Let's go back to verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He's drawing attention to the fact that they have rejected the fact that he is God. In chapter 8, verse 58, he's going to clarify this beyond any question. He will say, before Abraham was, I am. That's the clarifying 
moment in which Jesus, having been asked, who are you, uses the exact terminology that God used in Exodus 3.14 when Moses said, who shall I tell Pharaoh is sending me? Ego me. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Yahweh. They had rejected his deity. And so he says to them, in that I, being God, came from heaven, will you not believe when I go back? He's pointing to something that's already been established. They rejected his deity. So he goes back to this in the moment where they are displaying the fact that they do not have the spirit, they do not believe truth, they reject the truth. Well, in verse 70, letter G, you see that the unbeliever is marked out by false accusation. False accusation. Verse 70 says, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? This is obviously not elective choosing. This, is, this has nothing to do with them having been chosen in eternity past. Jesus is simply pointing to the fact that he one by one chose these 12 men to follow him in his humanity, in his trust in the Father, in his incarnation. He chose 12 men. One of them prophesied to be the son of perdition. He would betray him. But this begins to be unfolded by Jesus pointing out his false accusation. Where do we get that? That's what the term devil means. He's a false accusation. Accuser. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Jesus is simply pointing out one of you is a false accuser, and this, of course, is prophetic. He would falsely accuse Jesus, right? Well, letter H, the false convert, the false disciple, is characterized by betrayal, specifically of Jesus. Yeah, it might not. In fact, most often it won't look like the kind of betrayal that Judas displayed initially. What it will look like is a disinterest in those things that we went through in that first section, a disinterest in perseverance, a disinterest in listening, a disinterest in responding, a disinterest in inquiring, a disinterest in trusting in the Word of God for eternal life. A disinterest in the true Jesus of the Bible. And that can be very, very obscure. It can be very subtle. It can be easily disguised. That's why you and I are to be discerning. That's why we teach. That's why we're in this passage that you would have the discernment to know the difference between the convert and the false convert, the disciple and the false disciple, the believer and the false believer. Look at verse 64. It says Jesus knew who it was who would betray him. Verse 66 says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Who? Disciples. Not the twelve, but disciples. You know, in our day, this very well could easily look like that person who's been involved in some watered-down church for 12, 15, 30 years. It could easily look like that. 
because he's never being taught truth in such a way that challenges him to ask the question whether or not he's a false convert. There's no interest in that because nobody is teaching him in such a way that might pull off the layers and layers of callous that build up on a person's heart that's never really been taught truth. He's only been ever told that God is love and he loves you and everything's wonderful. Now go have lunch and have a great time. I'll see you next week. 71, verse 71 says, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. See, Jesus knows who's betraying him. The trouble is that the body sometimes doesn't know that. The other disciples were oblivious. He even told them, the one who dips the bread in the cup. And still, is it me? You think Judas was saying, is it me? Let me tell you something. Judas knew it was him. Judas was not wondering. Judas knew he had no interest in truth. His interest was money. His interest was himself. If you go back to verse 65, what we have seen in this section then is that this is a person who has proven at least at this point that there's no evidence the Father has given him to the Son. You don't want to be so conclusive that when a person shows himself to be an unbeliever that you would say, he clearly is not given to the Son by the Father. We would simply say that there is no evidence of that yet. Don't make that conclusion until his last breath. Because we want to believe there's hope for anyone to repent, come to know Christ. You've seen among the clearest expressions of the contrast between the believer and the false believer in the Bible. And the apex of all this theology, all this truth that we've looked at this morning is in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. As a comparison text, or or really the text that deals with what has been foretold here, in Luke 22, verse 47, you see the betrayal of Judas. You see it come to pass. Luke 22, 47, while he was speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders, who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Having said about Judas that he is a devil, he is a false accuser, Judas' life displays this false discipleship. He was involved. He did a lot of stuff, but ultimately his heart was won over by the flesh. 
As we looked at last week, he hung himself and his guts spilled out into the field that was bought, ultimately that it would be named after his experience. Field of blood. And that's his legacy. That's his legacy. But you might be thinking, now wait a minute. Didn't Jesus call Peter Satan? Isn't this the same thing? Don't you see a parallel work going on here? He was addressing Satan with regard to Satan's influence on Peter. Satan, get behind me. Because Satan was yet having an influence on Peter who was clearly redeemed. And this is scary. But this is why a text like this is so important for you and me as believers that we would ask whether or not we might actually be influenced by Satan in our devotion to the Lord. You can't be indwelt by Satan. You can't have him in you. He can't control you, but he certainly can influence you. And however many angels there are in the universe, he controls a third of them. Now, ultimately, the Lord controls them. But the Lord's given authority to Satan many legions of demons who would very likely steal and kill and destroy your soul. But because they can't, they would endeavor to use you. One of the reasons that we believe that knowing your theology and knowing it well is so important, that you might be involved in snatching some from the fire. Those who subject themselves to false teaching, the whims of postmodernity, those who creep into the church and teach things that do not reflect what it truly means to be a believer. The text in Luke 22 says, in relation to Peter's experience, it says, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire and in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And you remember Jesus had prophesied this about Peter, that he would deny him. He said, You'd deny me three times. Peter said, No way. I'd go to prison before I do that. And here it is unfolding right before Peter's and other people's own eyes. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. How he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Eye to eye. See what's happening? Peter's denied him three times, and he's looking Jesus in the eye, and Jesus is looking him in the eye. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times, is what Jesus had said. And Peter went out, and he wept bitterly. And the testimony of Peter's life is not that he went and killed himself. He went and humbled himself. 
And you have the testimony of his life throughout Christian history that tells us that he felt himself so unworthy to die similarly to the Savior that he insisted on being crucified upside down. And what we know for certain is that in the letters that Peter has given to us, First and Second Peter, that he displays a genuine faith in the word of Christ and the true Christ of the Bible. As you and I take the Lord's table this morning in honor of him, in memory of him, let's be careful. Let's be absolutely certain for each of us, first of all, that we believe in the Jesus of the Bible, that we believe that it is the Father who grants belief and repentance to those that he would give to the Son. And when he does, believers show perseverance in him. They don't check the Lord out. They don't give him a try. They trust in him, and that's revealed in how they live their lives.